Go Ask Alice is a show intended for adult audiences because adults want to learn too. Sometimes we cover sensitive material, so please take care of yourselves and listener discretion is advised. Now on to the show. Hello, internet friends, and welcome back to another episode of Go Ask Alice, the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids from adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and I always carry a bottle opener on me. With me is... <laughs> I'm Lindsay, and I was afraid of zombies until an embarrassingly late age. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm Sarah, and I'm going panning for gold this weekend. Oh, if I don't come back, I hit gold. I'm rich. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is the show where we jump down random internet rap. I was British. Random internet rabbits. (laughs) (laughs) We all start on the same starting page of Wikipedia every week. We use hyperlinks from that article to click around following our interests wherever it may lead until we've hit upon something so absolutely fascinating. We are captivated and we cannot stop reading. We usually read about two or more paragraphs before we determine ourselves metrically hooked. And as it turns out this week, there simply was not enough on Wikipedia to quench any of our intellectual thirsts. It sounds like... We all did a little bit of off-roading for more. So we'll see how we contribute (laughs) to wiki knowledge this week. We started today or this week on... Downing. So someone Downing. Whoever... Sir Robert Downing. Sir Robert Downing. Whoever... George. George George, 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 Downing. Robert Downing Jr. I know. I'm like, what? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Downing. uh, To celebrate... The changing of residence at Downing Street that is imminent. Where did everybody end up this week? I uh, I ended up on knife juggling or the history of knife juggling, um, but there wasn't too much on Wikipedia, so I just I did my own research and put together my own wild ride of knife juggling and other odd things humans huh. do. Oh wow. shit! Wow, that's a topic. <laughs> well, I ended up on the history of kites. Oh, okay. <laughs> Drew, I ended up on the history of weather vanes. Ooh. Oh, God, we're so close. We're so really close. close. <laughs> Drew, I must have clicked like close to like 50 to 100. Like I went far. Shit, I did too. What the fuck? (laughs) There wasn't a lot of info, so I was doing a lot of searching off of Wiki and um, found a lot of different contradictory stuff. So Mm. the history is a little murky, actually, and I wonder if kites were a little more straightforward. Yeah, they definitely were. Um, there was actually a lot of information on kites, but there was one specific type of kiting that I really, really liked that there wasn't, there, there was a bit of information, but not that much. And so that's, that's where I went off-roading on a, a specific type of kiting that we'll talk about because it's super cool. Awesome. Ooh, exciting. Okay. Okay. Well, before we begin, we should start on our question of the week, which is kind of related to what we did because we got completely lost 
in Wikipedia <laughs> and on the internet in general. This week's question is, have you ever gotten supremely lost somewhere? Which I feel like we all have just on Wikipedia. So I'm going to ask Lindsay first. Um, <laughs> I actually have not. <laughs> Never. <laughs> oh, no. No. How is that possible? <laughs> I don't know. But then after reading everybody's submissions, I think it's because I've never really left the country. <laughs> that would make sense. Everybody's been lost in a foreign city. And like, usually I, I don't know, maybe I'm just really good at planning. I might just be a weenie, like not adventurous, <laughs> because some of our submissions uh, sound like real adventures. So one of our uh, Twitter followers, Tombus, said that he took the last train out of Edinburgh, but there were only two trains on the same track. And instead of going west, they went north and realized an hour later they got off and were stranded and they had to beg a taxi driver to drive them back to an ATM and get money to pay to pay them for the whole drive. So wow. I'm assuming Tombus is not from Edinburgh. So it, that was probably a bit of a stressful encounter. Hopefully English is his first language. Uh, otherwise, that's even worse. <laughs> that's even worse, yeah. On our Discord, there were some like real, like I didn't really think about this, but like on the Discord, people are able to really get into the story in a way that you can't on Twitter. So I yeah. really... Oh my God, you should really check out Question of the Week channel on our Discord. The link is in our Twitter at Go Ask Alice Pod. There's a link tree and a permanent open invite to the Discord. Hop on over to the Question of the Week channel where you can read everybody's stories in detail. Um, one of the longer stories is by Robin, the Robin that we all love. Uh, she yeah. and some friends a few years ago went hiking in the woods and it started to get dark and they were not back at base camp where they expected they would be, which sounds absolutely terrifying. So that's probably why I've never been lost, because that sounds really scary. And I mm. just simply would not. And they were trying to figure out how to get back. And eventually they realized that base camp was about 15 feet away. And they had just been following a drainage ditch instead of an actual trail. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really lucky. <laughs> and oh, another God. story, save the best for last, swash plate tells us in great detail about this drunken adventure in Slovakia that ended up in Hungary by accident. Spoiler alert, he has a broken leg the entire time. <laughs> oh my God. That's such a good man. story. That was such a great story. Okay. The moment I've been waiting for. Drew. Yes. Where have you gotten lost? So... I've, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show specifically. I had this, this hiking trip in Wales. It was horrible. It was like the most fun I've had, but also like the most dangerous thing I've done in a very long time. We ended up cutting it short because it was just so horrible and, and our conditions were so bad and we just were getting zero sleep and walking a long distance every single day. And we kind of, by cutting it short, we really kind of went off of where we were planning to be. And so we kind of just had to figure out like where we were and how to get back home and so we ended up on this bus and this bus took us into the town we got to the train station turns out the train comes every six hours and we hadn't slept and so we took turns sleeping at the, like Aww. on benches in the train station because we were so tired that's awful god that's you've so gone awful back to your like human roots of wandering around <laughs> trying to survive Nomadic. Yeah. yeah taking turns at watching making sure no one's gonna steal you or your stuff what about sarah 
I have not gotten lost too often, except for when we were at the Statue of Liberty. So obviously you catch a ferry over to the Statue of Liberty or Alice Island, and we're there having a great time, and we're trying to get back to Manhattan, and the, the lines for the ferry were absolutely bonkers. It was insane, and it was going to be like a multiple hour wait to get on a ferry to get back to Manhattan. But they had another ferry that was going to New Jersey or the New Jersey port. (laughs) I'm so sorry for the two friends I was with. My big dumb brain was like, we'll just fucking hop on that one, go to New Jersey, catch an Uber across, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? Thinking we're going to rock up at a port somewhere right wrong very wrong we hop on the ferry everything's going great we're like wow we're getting like a great view of all of the skyline from the hudson this is amazing we end up it docks and it's like an old shipping yard and we look around and we're like what the fuck is this like there is no no road no taxis can't get self like self reception and i'm like oh oh this is not good and we were meant to have met we were meant to be meeting another friend back in the city who was arriving from Canada at a certain time and we were going to be running late so tensions were high um there was some upset but I'm like it's fine we'll just like look over there there's like a big like mansion looking thing which I mean it's not gated let's just walk over there so we walk for like 10 minutes in the direction on like a paddock which I'm sure was probably like old landfill or something walking on grass across to get to this mansion looking thing oh my god hoping that it's not someone's private mansion and we're just rocking up being like hi we're really lost (laughs) but we get there (laughs) and we get there and it's a place called Liberty House and it is the most stunning like restaurant slash venue because it overlooks all of Manhattan so they had like giant chess pieces and just like the most beautiful gardens and mansion and the the guy there was lucky enough for us to like we bought like a cold drink and was able to call a taxi oh he's like you're a long way and because obviously we're Australian he's like you're a long way from home (laughs) like yeah Yeah. (laughs) we're But I still reckon we got back quicker than we would have if we waited for the other ferry. I mean, maybe. (laughs) The freaking river's massive. Like, should have known, like, you could land a plane in there. It's pretty big. Okay, so who should go first this week? It might be a little much to have so much to talk about wind. It's a lot of wind. My talk is a bit more about history and artifacts. So I can mm. I can stay away from wind if Drew wants to take the wind for himself. The try wind. not to <laughs> try not to make a fart joke somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Drew, if you wanna break wind, you can <laughs> it's not working. We could do weather vanes and then lead into kites and then quickly destroy kites with knives. I think that sounds excellent. I'm with it. I don't actually know what a weather vane is, or if I do, it might be under a different term. So I was actually going to start out by asking you guys to describe a weather vane. Like a um, the thing that when wind blows, it it's like looks like a... Uh, like a 
what are they called? The blue people with white hats, a Smurf. It looks like a Smurf hat attached to a pole. And then when the wind blows, it inflates. Oh, that is an example. Oh, the windsock. Yeah. I venture to say I don't really know exactly what a weather van is either. Oh, my gosh. So have you guys ever seen on really tall buildings a sort of metal piece that's able to swivel around and point north, south, east, west (gasps) to the direction the wind is blowing? Okay. I'm looking at one right now. The shape of a plane. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So do you guys have a different word for it or were you just like, I've never known it had a name? I think I just like forgot. I think that's what it came down to. <laughs> Maybe we know them as like wind meters. I don't know. I don't know if I've ever known a name. It's just been that thing. Because you often see them like people have roosters with the north, south, east, yeah, west that's yeah. been around. Oh, it's weird. Oh my but, God. Yeah. <laughs> my first question was going to be, what do you normally see adorning them? Roosters is exactly right. <laughs> right? Why? Why a rooster? That's, I don't understand. That's what I'm going to talk about. Perfect. Yay! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> so before I let Drew break my wind, um, I'm just going to quickly <laughs> come in and say, <laughs> I'm, try- I'm trying. Um, <laughs> I'm going to quickly describe the function of a weather vane, uh, but then I'll be done talking about its scientific purpose but i mean as you can imagine weather vane uh is used to determine the direction that the wind is blowing and sometimes how strongly the wind is blowing and so you Mm. might find this important if you are trying to keep track of the weather especially from inside so anywhere that you care about the strength and the direction of the wind you're going to find a weather vane pretty vague but there are a few examples of uses that i truly never thought of because it's just not a part of our functioning society anymore Uh, so bits of it have been antiquated typically this is something made of metal but some earlier forms of weather vanes i guess it becomes a smushy definition include this sort of flag or like i don't know what to call it but kind of like a um these are the P. It's a type of like tiny flag. Uh, oh, a pennant? Yeah, a pennant. Or banners. These are all things that are considered weather vanes, even though it's just not something that we typically see on top of a barn or something like that. Uh, but I kind of always thought that they were decorative and thought that maybe at one point in time somebody cared about their function, but really never thought too hard about it. Kind of like the foghorn where I'm like, yeah, they exist, but like, I don't really know or care why. (laughs) As it turns out, the history of the weather vane, I got wildly different answers depending on where I looked. So the wiki article officially starts with ancient Greece at about 48 BC, but I found other sources that go back to ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt. So it's a good, good few thousand years of using them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But the interesting thing, I think, is that in Mesopotamia and Egypt, it was the banner flag sort of representation, not necessarily the giant sock tube, but just literally Mm -hmm. a flag. And it was a little bit more than just decoration. I think that's what I found so surprising was I always thought of using flags as just purely aesthetic or, you know, some kind of rallying kind of patriotism actually had a scientific purpose or a practical purpose beyond that. Wow. Hmm. 1800 to 1600 BC in ancient Mesopotamia, there was a fable and it had the quote in it, 
They look at the wind vane for the direction of the wind. That is the most straightforward <laughs> quote from history ever. <laughs> Are you kidding? Yeah, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like someone was translating and just like, too complicated. I'm going to put it in plain English for you. <laughs> yeah. In ancient Egypt, there were flags and streamers atop the Temple of Luxor that began during Amenhotep III in about 1400 BC. So still about the same, like, you know, 4,000 years ago. There is also a relief in the Temple of Set I. And this is, this is what blew my mind. So just, okay. People flew banners and flags during war. So that the archers could see which way the wind was blowing and how strongly so they could compensate. Fucking genius. Wow. That I is never so thought smart. of that. I just thought it was like a brand deal yeah, exactly. type thing. It's like, <laughs> we're coming in. This is who we are. Thank you very much. Or like, hey, if you're lost in the chaos, this is base camp. Like, come back to this side. Yeah, we're the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then I think of like capture the flag as well. I mean, yeah, I think it, like I don't. No, yeah, it would be pretty damning if like you destroyed the other side's flag. Mm. Kind of like this is a symbol of you, and you're ruined. And then the archers had no idea where where to point. I think it's a good tactic. We would do well in. <laughs> we would do well. Arrow war. <laughs> we would do the governor's gallows war. He's dead. He's like used. <laughs> Chief and <laughs> No, I don't. I don't think like that. Come on. <laughs> no, you don't. You are too nice. I think like that. I would die. I would not do well at war. <laughs> so at about the same time in China, 139 BC, there are records of something called a wind observing fan. Sounds like a weather vane to me. And military documents also called them the five ounce because that's how much they weighed at the time. I thought that was like very. Sp- Specific. That, yeah. That is very specific. Weird uh, slang, I guess, association. Or they also called it the wind indicating bird, which sounds a lot to me like the weather vanes we're familiar with, with a bird that points in a certain direction. So these have been around a really long time. People have always cared about the way that the weather was blowing. But I'm sure that you can also imagine other people who might care would be seafarers and people who live on the coast. Yes. Because ships really care. So this is actually touches on something Sarah once talked about, the Lighthouse of Alexandria. Two episodes in a row, it's got to (laughs) mention. Yeah, this has been fucking important, this thing. It is thought, because, you know, it's, it's destroyed. So we're not completely positive. But people think that in around 260 BC, it had streamers. Uh, like a flag sort of a thing at the very top to tell a direction, which would be very helpful for people who are seafaring. But more famous mm-hmm. for seafaring, I think, were the Vikings in the 800s. Mm-hmm. They had weather vanes on top of their ships. They have a characteristic shape, actually. So I was getting a little bit at this point, I was well off the article and we were talking about different styles of weather vanes and how you could associate that back to the time or the culture that was making them. What's particularly unique about Viking weather vanes is that if I drew a circle and then put a square around that circle, cut my square into quarters, my bottom corner 
would be like, you know, a right angle with kind of like a swooping bit from the circle on it. So it would be a right angle with like a dip to it. That sort of quadrant shape is what they called it. That sort of uh, shape was really good for catching the wind. They also would adorn it on top with like some kind of animal from a fable or something like that. So I still have not revealed why roosters specifically, but I'm working up to it through history. According to the wiki article, in 48 BC is the really the oldest weather vane that we know of, and it was on something called the Tower of the Winds, Ooh. which is one of the oldest recorded weather stations in history. It still stands today, Wow! but wow. the weather vane is no longer on top of it. And when it did exist, it was about four to eight feet long, and it looked like Triton or Poseidon, basically like a merman. And again, this was to honor the fact that he would have been in control of the wind and the sea. Where is it? Is it in Greece? Yes. Wow. Okay. That is amazing. That is very cool. Yeah. I can show you a picture. It's a little underwhelming because it's kind of this like just small octagonal cylindrical building that looks like a a really ugly silo. 2000 years old. She's held up pretty good. Yeah. To still be standing. In ancient Greece and ancient Rome, it was actually quite typical, people think, to put gods, particularly of the wind or Hermes slash Mercury, the messenger. People who were associated with wind and swiftness would be on the top of weather vanes. It's also pretty prevalent in medieval history. And here's where we get to an era that I think is really what's going to set the pace. So somewhere... I realize this is not medieval, so historians, I'm really sorry, but somewhere around the 800s, I could not figure out which fucking pope it was because one source said Gregory, one said Nicholas, one said Leo. Some pope near the 800s said every church in Europe needs to have a rooster weather vane on its steeple. Oh, that's a very specific command. (laughs) Why a rooster? I had no idea that was related to Catholicism. Me fucking neither. How? (laughs) I literally thought like, okay, farmers, they wake up and like, you know, the rooster crows and it's like, oh, what a, what a farming morning. (laughs) You know, my farm wind. I I really, and I don't think of like cathedrals, like these big, grand, beautiful buildings with a fucking chicken on top. (laughs) (laughs) This is ridiculous. I thought it was going to be like Farmer George from Britain decided that it would make a nice little weather vane for his barn. And he started a stall and he started selling them. I thought that was going to be where we get the rooster from. I'm shocked. So it's actually... In honor of Jesus, like all things with the church. <laughs> I mean, it's coming from the Pope, so I don't know what you expected. It's got to be about Jesus. The yeah. Pope's not like really into kitschy farm life. Like, he's just... Sarah looked really upset when I said Jesus. So sorry, everyone. I need to point out the obvious that the Pope cares about Jesus. <laughs> It's his job. It's his only job. Literally his only job. For for those of you who were not raised Roman Catholic, uh, Jesus is betrayed. Hence why he is nailed to the cross. And part of his prophecy is to Peter. He says, the cock will not crow in the morning. 
after the last supper or the final supper that was the last supper no one calls it the final (laughs) (laughs) it's a final supper (laughs) god damn it the morning after the last supper so the last supper was the last time jesus ate dinner before he was crucified uh with all his friends that's that famous painting all of his disciples. And so he tells Peter that the cock will not crow the morning after we have this meal uh, until you have denounced me three times. Basically, like what ends up happening is three different times that morning, Peter's like, I don't know this guy. I'm not friends with him. Denouncing him three times. And then the cock crows. So because of this, I guess, part of of the, the story, the Pope decided that the rooster was a symbol of jesus and this moment commemorating this moment okay i now do not like the rooster (laughs) well (laughs) why does everything have to come back to jesus i mean christianity was just a really couldn't we have something nice related to like buddha or allah or some historians think that the rooster really took off because the tail aesthetically when you draw Mm -hmm. or sculpt the tail of the rooster it is very good at catching the wind because of the fanning shape that it takes that's makes sense sorry i'll stop hating on the rooster (laughs) like i said kind of ancient china i don't know which bird but they also had a bird uh in their their history like i said it's called the wind indicating bird so i don't know that they used a rooster particularly but the same way that birds are good at flying because of their tails and their feathers depictions of birds make very handy weather vanes but what i thought was so cool about particularly the Christian history was that around the year 1000, people in really, really old times did not have insulation in their houses. So to insulate their houses that were made of like brick and stone, they had to have these really large rugs or tapestries adorning their houses. And if you were really wealthy, you could get these commissioned to tell some story. The Bayo Tapestry is one of such tapestries that is very, very famous. And there is a scene on this tapestry of a man putting a rooster, like, weather vane on top of the Westminster Abbey. That's so cool. Wow. Yeah, that's the whole point of this one particular scene. And I did look it up. I'll put it on our Twitter. I'll post it in our Discord channel. Although looking at it, you're kind of like, if you didn't tell me that's what I should know. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really look obvious. (laughs) But I also just like took, when I read this, I took a moment and I was like, I bet that was the most exciting shit back then. Like somebody had to climb up really high to put a thing that spins on a roof. Like, oh God, it would have been like a public spectacle. Same as like the, the public executions, like everybody and their dog and their children would just like toddle out for some entertainment. Yeah, they're like probably I, like, look at this guy on the church. Yeah, they were probably like, will, will he die? So high. Yeah. Will he <laughs> yeah. fall? I want to be there. <laughs> I want to see it. So yeah, it's it's completely immortalized in the Bayo Tapestry. I realize that now I'm at about 1000 AD. So that kind of segues into medieval banners that flew during battle. So when I was talking before about archers and stuff, this is actually the image that's in my mind of banners blowing during battle. And a lot of medieval depictions of warfare will have these banners and the 
uh, archers, yeah. yeah, kind of all in one scene. And what's interesting is that the word vein in weather vein comes from the Anglo-Saxon word fane, F-A-N-E, which means flag. Oh. oh. I never knew what the fuck a vein was. <laughs> yeah. This is all to build up to actually my favorite app. Like when I read this, I literally wrote in my notes, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Kind of unusual for me, but I am so fucking jazzed to tell you about American Revolutionary War history for a minute. <laughs> cool. Okay. Hey, Drew, have you played Fallout 4? Yeah. Okay, where does it take place? It takes place in Boston. There was a quest. If you followed the quest line that had to do with Valentine, the detective. Yes, Nick Valentine. I got it. He gives you like a little detective investigation to go on and you go. And the guy who gave him Nick Valentine the request, you find dead, unfortunately. But you continue the quest yourself because the guy told you that he was after some treasure. And when you follow the quest, you find the guy dead on the roof of Fanel Hall. And the name of the quest is the Gilded Grasshopper. Have you done this quest? I feel like I have, but it's been a long time. Okay. So you fight through this building called Fanel Hall. Fanel Hall is real. It's located in Boston. And it is a historical building where a lot of the founding fathers first made their very impassioned speeches about why we should be independent from Britain. You find a copper grasshopper. That grasshopper is jetting out from a very, very long piece of metal because... It's the top of a weather vane. And it is this pretty hefty copper grasshopper. And the guy who gave you the quest originally, who's now dead, was going on on and on and on about this guy named Shem Drown. And that Shem Drown used to be a really famous copper worker and an artist in the early, early days of the American Revolution. And the idea is that there is a buried treasure somewhere and the key to that treasure or the map to that treasure is inside the Gilded Grasshopper. Spoiler alert, that part is not real. (laughs) (laughs) I checked. I checked Shem Drown grave treasure. But everything else is factual. There is a gilded grasshopper on the top of the Fennel Hall building in Boston, and there is a note inside of it that is called Food for the Grasshopper. Indeed, there was a Shem Drown very, very early in the days of the American Revolution who made America's first weather vane, and it was a First Nations archer made it out of copper, and he made a gilded grasshopper for Fennel Hall to complement a grasshopper that's atop the Royal Exchange in London to symbolize a complementary nature of our commerce and economy that was growing. Oh, okay. Because I was kind of confused, like, why is there a grasshopper? I thought that the quest itself was really quirky. It turns out all of it is actually (laughs) historic. All of it is true. (laughs) Except for the treasure in his grave. And apparently the gravestone that they use for him is somebody else's grave in the same cemetery. But it was a wild piece of interactive history I totally happened upon by accident. I shit you not, I did this quest a few days ago. Like, I can't believe that this came back as my topic. so funny. That's amazing. I love that they... They changed his gravestone in the game just in case people want to go try find him and <laughs> get the treasure. And it turns out that our founding fathers were massive nerds for weather veins. They fucking loved them. 
Thomas Jefferson had the weather vane at Monticello connect to like a rod of some sort that actually went down into his house, like through the ceiling, so that he could tell what the weather vane was doing on his roof from inside his house. So it would just spin (laughs) in his house. What a fucking nerd. (laughs) (laughs) That is very nerdy. Wow, that is very cute. I wonder what his wife thought. It was like, really? (laughs) You're drilling down? Do you have... (laughs) Does this have to go into the kitchen? (laughs) (laughs) John, how am I meant to bake? George Washington commissioned a weather vane of a dove after uh, the Revolutionary War, actually. That was his way of commemorating the end of the war and peace was with a motherfucking weather vane. Who knew? Not how I would have done it, but okay. (laughs) We celebrate different now. I actually had a mission to go well beyond my normal number of clicks. Um, because I always, Very proud. I always feel like I end up doing like five to ten clicks. I want a Drew World record. I ended up doing 45 clicks to get the kites. What? I really just wanted to find out who was like, I'm going to put some shit on a string and fly it around. All right. It actually turns out that kites are really extremely culturally important to a ton of different countries, which I really had no idea because it's, it's like all countries that are not the US and Europe. So it kind of like my perspective on it was just like, I don't know, but it's, they're very, very important to a lot of different countries. To me, kites were just like a beach activity with my dad where I would just like see how high we could fly it and that was it. But Aww. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was my, my kite experience. That, that was my kite experience. <laughs> my kite experience. <laughs> <laughs> kites are really just so much more than that. The kite itself consists of wings, tethers, and anchors. Uh, I, I think we're all a little bit familiar with what a kite looks like. I mean, uh, I've, I've, I'm assuming we've all seen a kite one time in our lives. Kites can also also often have a bridle or a tail that helps guide it to like face the wind specifically so that you get more lift on it because if it was just like a regular square, it wouldn't get as much lift as if you actually had some kind of like directionality to it. Okay. Though not all kites actually have a bridle. There are things like box kites. They're actually like literal boxes and they look really cool, but they, they fly and function as any other kite would. Kites can also have a fixed or moving anchors, balance the kite, and the name kite itself, which I think actually pertains a little bit to what Lindsay was talking about, derives from the resemblance to hovering birds, the hovering kite bird. Oh. So I was thinking that, that the bird that you were thinking of in your weather vane thing was, was a kite. Perhaps. I think it's possible. Yeah. Much further beyond the kites that we normally think of, there are kites that are literally designed to lift humans. These are known as man-lifting kites, which I was like, whoa, that's a, that's a pretty cool thing. Didn't know that existed. Yeah, they're used for reconnaissance, entertainment, and were especially relevant during the development of the first practical aircrafts, the biplane. Ah. Kites are very, very integrated into the aircraft. As I mentioned before, kites have a super long history with many different types of kites being flown individually or at festivals worldwide. So kites are, are very important culturally, as I said. And then there are kites that are just like huge, which are known as power kites, that are steerable and designed to actually like generate a large amount of force. And these produce things like kite surfing. I don't know if you've ever seen kite surfing, but they can turn it specifically. And, and I always thought that was so cool. Yeah, right? It's a really cool activity. I want to do that. Yeah. It looks so much fun. Yeah, absolutely it does. Might rip my arms out of my sockets, though, but I want to do it. (laughs) 
Yeah, so uh, uh, there's a huge array of things that are considered kites, and I feel like this is this kind of like Lindsay's weather vanes. There's so many things that are considered kites. Just like basically, if it's tether and it flies, it's a kite. Weird how wind does that. When wind blows something, could be a kite, could be a weather vane. Like a lot of my topics that I've considered, it turns out that kites are extremely ancient and absolutely have a ton of history behind them. So to begin, the first evidence of a kite actually comes from us from Asia, where the Otis depiction is a Mesolithic period cave painting Wow! in an island in Indonesia. This painting is believed to have been painted between 9,500 to 9,000 BC. Holy shit! That's the first kite! My god, that is ridiculous. I love that that means proto-humans or hu- like whatever they were back then looked up in the sky and they were like, I want to put something in there. i want to join the birds or they like put their hand out when the wind was blowing and they're like wait a minute (laughs) it specifically depicts a type of kite which is still used by the modern people in that island for recreation or just for tradition the specific kite is made from a calope leaf and bamboo skin and then they use pineapple fiber as rope where the modern versions use string wow That is so creative. Yeah, right? It's really, I mean, it's just kind of like finding whatever you can to, to make a kite. And that's what they did. Now we actually move to China, where the kite is considered to be an invention of the 5th century BC from the Chinese philosopher Mozi or Lu Ban, were considered to be the inventors of the, of the kite. And uh, materials at that time for making kites were readily available because they had a lot of shipping and and different kinds of things that used these kind of uh, materials that that pick up wind. So kites are just kind of an offshoot of that where it's just like, oh, you know, we have all this leftover material. Why don't we just make something to fly with? (laughs) It is specifically known by 549 CE that paper kites were flown as it was recorded that a paper kite was actually used as a message for a rescue mission specifically. Kites are definitely used for a lot of communication, which, you know, even as far as World War II, they were used for communication. So that's pretty nuts. Ancient and medieval Chinese sources described using kites for measuring distance, testing winds, lifting people, signaling, and communication for military operations. So kites have this, like, really diverse kind of background that they can be used for. I just found it very cool that that could be a use of a kite and to something that I would play with as a kid. That's how my friend and I found each other in a crowd last night. I'm not kidding. With kites? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, it was a balloon, but it was the same thing. And that was like, we kept naming things around us. And finally, I was like, someone's holding a balloon. And that's how we found each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stuff in the air. It's so much easier to yeah, see. Yeah, it was a lot easier. Yeah. Imagine people marching into war with kites, just flying their kite to show that there there was some wind the enemy would see you coming from like a mile away they'd be like who's that who's that person with a kite why does it have the king's logo on it that's odd (laughs) well when they when they talk about the man lifting kites they might have actually literally flown a person in the air to say like oh see where the enemy is like it could have been literally flying someone in the air as reconnaissance like a kite spy a kite spy, exactly. Wow, that's epic. The earliest known Chinese kites were actually flat and often rectangular. So that's kind of what we, we imagine. I don't know. To me, that's kind of what I imagine a kite is. And then they had tailless kites that incorporated a stabilizing bowline to help directionality and control. Kites were often decorated with mythological motifs or legendary figures. And some kites were even fitted with strings and whistles to make them sound while they're flying. I'd want to make like a fake bird. 
that makes birds (laughs) 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 Kites were also known throughout Polynesia and as far as New Zealand, actually, where it was assumed that the knowledge of kites was actually disseminated from China along with its people. So as the Chinese people spread out, they disseminated the knowledge of kites. They actually carried with them a lot of traditions. They were actually studied in Polynesia by anthropologists because they wanted to get an idea of early Asian traditions because they were maintained throughout in Polynesia instead of being maintained in Asia. It's kind of interesting. The Polynesians particularly, especially as they historically were populating the islands and making their way down to like New Zealand, seafaring was extremely important to them. Mm-hmm. And like immediately you think of sails. Yeah. A knowledge of the weather and the behavior of the wind and particularly for navigating, but also for, you know, I would imagine other parts of their cultural life. Like it kind of makes sense that these people who, yeah, their culture so directly depends on the wind. It kind yes. of makes sense yeah. that they would have it so well integrated to their culture, but also maintaining it um, as just such a like principal part. It's kind of funny to say it like that, though, because I feel like if you looked at American culture and like a very typical New Jersey American cultural weekend on the beach, it would also include kites. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's very funny you say that because we're actually moving on to the introduction of kites into Europe, where actually the arrival of kites was rather late compared to the rest of the world. Stories of kites were actually first brought to Europe by Marco Polo. That's towards the end of the 13th century. And then kites specifically were brought back by sailors from Japan and and Malaysia in the 16th and 17th century. So we're, you know, China, it was very ancient to have kites. Now in Europe, it's a little bit more modern compared to, to where it was in Asia. Kites were initially regarded as mere curiosities, but then by the 18th and 19th century, they were actually being used for scientific research. I know our U.S. listeners will definitely remember this, but in 1752, Benjamin Franklin published his account using a kite, his kite experiment, to prove that lightning was caused by electricity. That is some balls to fly (laughs) a kite in a lightning storm. Yeah. Terrifying. Now we actually get to the Wright brothers because the kites were definitely completely instrumental in the research as they developed the first airplane in the late 1800s. Several different designs of man-lifting kites were developed during this time, so they kind of got an idea of how to really capture the wind in that kind of way and then actually use that for flight. These developments in, in technology culminated in a period between 1860 and 1910, becoming known as the European Golden Age of Kiting. <laughs> It was very short, but, but it was the golden age. As the, the more mechanical planes began to be developed, kiting kind of fell a little bit to the wayside because it's just like, kite is not as cool as a plane. <laughs> I kind of see that. It's like, okay, but I could just be there. Like, why am I putting a kite there? I could just go there. I could just go there. Plane. I could be the kite. Now we get to the 20th century, where there have been many new kite designs that have been developed, including the Eddie's tailless diamond, the tetrahedral kite, which is super cool to look at, the Rolligo wing, the sled kite, the parafoil, and the power kites, which I mentioned before. Power kite. So aside from recreation, these kites have actually been used in meteorology, aeronautics, wireless communications, and photography. But World War II actually saw limited use of kites. They were used for military communication purposes. But as I said, the mechanical powered aircraft kind of just like people were like, kites, who cares? Who cares about kites anymore? I don't care. Old. Old. For recreational and cultural impacts, kites remain very important to a lot of cultures, especially outside of the U.S. and Europe, as I said before. The wiki article here actually dives really deep into the cultural importance of kites, 
But what I really wanted to focus on, which was one type of kite flying, this is known as kite fighting. What? Do they fight in the air? Or is it like robot fighting, but kites in the air? Oh, you are not prepared. I am so not prepared. Fighter kites are a specific type of kite that are typically small, unstable, single line like kite. A very basic kite being flown with a single line. Basically, it's tension alone on that one line is what controls the kite. Yeah. So though the kite design itself is very simple, the cord attached to the kite is the very interesting part. So this cord is known as a manja, and it is typically a glass-coated cotton cord that is used to cut down the lines of other kites. Oh my god. Oh my god, it's a <gasps> battle kite. Yes, it's a battle kite. So literally these kites are designed to cut the cords of other kites as they fly. Is oh this like god. for if you're in a kite competition and you're yes. competitors? Yes, yes. Are... This is not just you being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I see, I see. Not for terrorizing children. <laughs> <laughs> you really could though. Nice kite, get it out of here. You could get the same effect with just scissors as well. We'll get to that. We'll definitely get to that. <gasps> okay, oh, okay. Kite fighting is actually very popular in a ton of countries. Um, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, India, Indonesia, Nepal, Pakistan, Vietnam, Korea, Thailand, Chile, and Brazil. Um, so basically all throughout the world, anywhere that isn't Europe and the US. We could pioneer it here. Start your own kite club. Yeah, <laughs> not a fight fighter club. kite. The fight kite. kite. Club. I like it. The construction of the kite itself is traditionally made from lightweight thin paper, and the scaffold is typically like a flexible wood like bamboo. Modern fighter kites, they use synthetic materials like malar or aircraft insulation, nylon or polyester sheeting to just like make the skin of the of the kite. Historically, the line, which I found way more interesting, uh, was made from thin cotton or hemp line, and then it was coated in crushed glass, and so they'd use a glue to literally make the line sharp. This kind of reminds me of like drag racing of hot rods, and then it's like one of them has like the wheels with the spikes on it, and it gets close to the other one and ruins the car next to him. That's exactly what this is. More modernly, synthetic lines have actually been coated in a variety of just like abrasives. So it's not just like glass, it's like just any kind of abrasives. But here's where we get to the link between Sarah's topic and mine. Some cultures even use lines that have metal knives attached to them. Wow. I was about to ask if people ever go crazy customizing theirs with weirder and more dangerous shit. I don't know if it's more dangerous shit, but the article that I read, because this is actually a separate article that I got into a little bit, there's a lot of people who have like trade secrets about their like specific line coding that they use and the glue that they use and all kinds of different things just like because they want a specific like type of performance out of their kites. This, this shit is so, so competitive. The competition itself involves two or more contestants flying their kites, of course, and the person who cuts the opponent's line wins. There's also multiple kite matches where the person with the last kite standing in the air is the winner. Now, we'll get into the cutting techniques. There's the release cut. Once your lines come in contact with each other, both parties will actually reel out their lines. And so basically you're sending your line out. As it goes past the other line, it's abrasive enough that it will cut the line. So you just, you're releasing it. And then there's the pull cut, which is you actually yank your kite inwards. And so that's supposed to like pull it back instead of letting it go forward. And that is another quick cut that you can get that will like cut the cord. Are you allowed to punch each other on the ground? (laughs) 
<laughs> no, no, no. Not at all. Oh, damn it. There's also another type of competition, which is the one that I really want to see. It's called capture and grounding competitions, in which the competitors try and capture their opponent's kite while bringing it to the ground. What? But then wouldn't they lose too? No, what you cut their kite, and then okay. once you cut their kite, you wrap your kite around it, and then you bring it in slowly, like you wind up your line. Oh my like god! Like an it's... anaconda. Exactly. Yeah. Wow, that is so traumatic for the poor kite. For the poor kite, it's a kite. <laughs> you literally cut your opponent's line, and then you encircle their kite with your kite, and then you bring it down. And if you bring it down, then you've captured their kite, and it's yours. But if the kite is cut and not captured, it belongs to no one. And this is where kite runners actually come in. Like the book? Exactly, yeah. It's, that's what the book is based off of. Kite runners will attempt to pursue the kite and claim it. It sounds super cool. I would love to see a kite fight. Yeah, I Me would too. too. Drew, I want to get like into this like with you. Like I want to like, <laughs> I wish we lived close enough to each other that we could just like have a little kite Start workshop. a kite club? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be so funny. Oh my God, this, why isn't it a TV show? Like you've got Robot Wars. I want Kite Wars. That's a great point. I have like a little reporter kite that has his own little camera so you can oh, get like the view from in the air. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the wind conditions up here are really bad. <laughs> I can't hold her stable. <laughs> Red Bull, I think it was in 2015, had a cut like an international kite fight like league. Really? Yeah. That's very cool. Red Bull sponsored it, so that's that's something. That makes sense. The wings and flying. That's their gimmick. Yes, that's kites. Kites I love that. That could get me into sports. (laughs) Kite fighting, yeah. That would be my sport. All of our topics are leading really well into each other. They're very similar. Yeah. The perfect bridge between like pure wind to knives is kite fighting. Let's learn about knives. Let's learn about knives. Sounds like a good time to learn about knives. First of all, tell me what you think of when you think of knife juggling. Th- throwing knives and catching them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think of like big long knives or little knives or knives on fire? Oh, I didn't know I had so many options. <laughs> yeah, a lot of options there. I tend to think of like a like a circus performer kind of, you know, juggling knives or swallowing knife act. I, I know that's kind of like a thing in in circuses i always think of like the old circus posters with people with massive long knives yeah which seems so dangerous but they're they're weighted to make it more safe oh i didn't know that yeah it might surprise you that knife juggling can actually be dated back to before the discovery of coffee and even before christianity itself oh my god yeah (laughs) yeah so Along the similar lines to both of your topics, actually, the oldest records are in the Daoist or the now Chinese province of Haren text. So it is super ancient from um, old Chinese culture. And around the same time that it sounds like the kites as well as the weather vanes were picking up in popularity, so was knife juggling. <laughs> so... The, it's like a wild time. Everybody's got 
things spinning around, kites in the air, and knives in the air. It was like a really fun time. Yeah, humanity discovered the air all at once, and they're like, what can we do with this? <laughs> yeah. So one of the, the oldest written records of someone using knife juggling kind of as an entertainment in general or just, you know, written down that some dude was juggling knives – is actually from about 530 BC. Wow. And this is from that Taoist text. So ages ago, two and a half thousand years ago, and the text goes that there was a man named uh, Lenzi. He really just needed some favor from Yord Young and his companions. He needed home, food, you know, he was just trying to make a living. So Yord Yan of Song summoned this man. He had heard about this man's doings of the knife juggling and summoned him to come and perform. The man went above and beyond. Not only did he perform for the Lord, but he did it on stilts as well. And it's written in the text that these stilts were twice as long as his freaking body. Oh, wow. He's really tall. Same vibes as putting a rooster on the Westminster Abbey. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh my god, that guy's so high up! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like, what, a 10-foot? He wasn't just standing on them either. The record says that he was running around and jumping <laughs> and just, like, doing a lot of stuff. Wow. <laughs> that would have been the Bayo Tapestry. <laughs> <laughs> I think this would make excellent art. The written te- text describes him as running and jumping on these stilts, juggling seven swords... So not just knives, but swords. And at any one time, he had five swords in the air consistently. Wow. So again, he's doing all of this to try earn like money, basically. And Yord Young was amazed. He was like, this is bloody good work. Excellent work, kind sir. And he granted him gold and silk in return. This kind of become folklore that this is how you get in good graces with nobility. When you think of maybe knife jugglers nowadays, you don't really think of them hanging out with, like, the president or the queen. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. yeah, exactly. (laughs) No. But in ancient China, there was a period of time where knife juggling was seen as, like, this, like an art form. You were a very skilled person. And it becomes super popular across China for people to highly train in knife juggling, stilt walking, all of that, to be this, like, art form included in higher society what changed why don't we value our knife jugglers anymore (laughs) i can tell you what changed before we get there there's so much different imagery from chinese text of people depicting knife juggling and sword juggling and knife and ball juggling like it's just insane the amount of things that there are there's even one one of my favorite drawings is there's this man who's not only juggling five swords but he has like two or three balancing on his nose as he is juggling (gasps) oh my god this is art this is an art form as i said they didn't always keep this nice status in society they used to enjoy like a celebrity and mingling with the upper classes but this will come to a crashing halt in the ming dynasty of about 1368 common era because all of a sudden these performers fell out of favor with the upper class and the emperor and they started to feel that these entertainers were very vulgar and they weren't refined so they weren't included. I thought you were going to say there was a horrible accident. I 
wish. Because <laughs> you were like, it came crashing to a halt. And I was like, <laughs> someone got beheaded. The guy accidentally killed the <laughs> emperor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish it was not that good. They were seen as, you know, buffoons or charlatans, not as an artist doing an art form, but just as a skill, like a silly person, which Mm. is really sad. Well, they might have very well been. It's like they're trying to stand out. So they're like, okay, I'll tell poop jokes. (laughs) That's very true. Just juggling. Because I do feel like entertainment kind of does that where it like goes for the cheapest thrills. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe that's what happened after such a long time. It was kind of like trying to get shock value from people and, and like, you know, worse and worse degrading stuff or, or inappropriate stuff. I don't know. Speculating. Hmm. I don't know. Could have just gotten stale, too. It could have just been like, oh, we've seen you juggle that night. Like, all right. Yeah. After like after over a thousand years of it. My little stale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I see it. It wasn't just in ancient Chinese culture that these knife jugglers were prevalent. It dates back to a few different awesome older cultures. So I'm going to highlight a couple of my favorite. The first one starts in Norse mythology. Oh, wow. We can look back into the Gaffelfanging, which is a text of all of the different myths and legends of the different gods from North mythology. There's this old fable or this story in this book. We've got to set the scene. This old man walking down the street. He's having a good time. All of a sudden, he comes across this man who is wielding his sword so dexterously that seven were in the air at once and he didn't have a cut on his body. This older man was like, geez, okay, very impressive. What is your name, kind sir? Like, what are you doing? Why are you here? The man answered that his name was Gang Larry and that he had come a super duper long way and he sought the lodgings for night. He needed to get somewhere to stay, somewhere to sleep. He wanted to talk to the king about this. Wait, I'm just imagining our question of the week. All of our friends and listeners who got lost in foreign lands and we're trying to fix the situation or like, you know, get someone's attention. And all they had to do was just juggle seven <laughs> swords in public. <laughs> and then someone would come up to them and, and then they could finally say, hey, I need lodging for the night because I'm new here. I'm new here. I'm new in town. I'm new in town. <laughs> I come to your land blazing weapons and I'm using them for pleasure. Please give me lodging. That seems to be the theme of all of these older stories. Is it's like, if you needed to get attention from someone, chuck something in the air that's sharp. <laughs> so this dude's juggling probably like nine swords if seven are in the air at any one time. And he's like, I need to talk to the king. I need a bed. Here's my CV. Can you take me to him? <laughs> the old man's like, okay, I will go with you and I will take you to see him. And you can ask him for your favors yourself. This is a line directly translated from the original text. In a swift final motion, Galanri flung the swords and daggers that he had been juggling so that they landed in the ground, standing up in the form of a circle around him. Whoa. Whoa. He's a cool guy. guys. I just put ye old mic drop. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it worked out well from him in the story. Sounds like he got lodging. Yeah. Good for him. We can then move on to another ancient cultures and texts, and this one is from the Jewish Tamads, 
And there are many, many references to juggling throughout the whole Tamad. It looks like this juggling is mentioned like five whole times through the writings from 150 to 220 CE. For anyone who's not familiar, the Tamad is written record of all of these different debates between rabbis from the 2nd to the 5th century, and they all relate to the teaching of the Torah, how to interpret the Torah, how to teach it, and then they're debating each other. And somehow, juggling comes up five times. (laughs) Five times? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. One of the stories tells of a person named Lavi Barsisa, who was praised for juggling eight whole knives in front of a rabbi and the prince of national leaders. I don't know what the moral of that story is. That's all the information I could find. Okay. But I think it was just impressive. If any of our followers know <laughs> on Twitter, like, tweet me. Maybe they're just like, this is cool shit. Like, hey, I saw this today. <laughs> like, like write, write it down. <laughs> write it down. Another tells a story of Gem Lavrel. I'm probably saying the name wrong and I'm so sorry. But this person went just absolutely above and beyond. This man has made his own homemade props, which consist of a giant dowel with a large wick on the end, doused in oil. And then we can see where this is going. He set these wicks on fire and he was like juggling what they write as like a seething inferno. Oh, when I lost my friend last night, it was at Fire Jugglers. (laughs) 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 No way. I just realized that was pertinent information. (laughs) 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 But a seething inferno is so fucking cool it really apparently this particular man's like top tier skill was that he was able to juggle eight of these like portable bonfires they described them as at any given time yeah that sounds like dnd now (laughs) portable bonfire (laughs) they were just a couple of my favorite like little mentions of it scattered through history and it was so much more historic than I thought it was going to be. I really did not think it was going to date back thousands of years. Um, And then for the next couple thousand years up until where we are today, we've had so many different depictions of juggling swords with flames or juggling balls. Like just juggling has been depicted um, quite often throughout like medieval and modern history. We get to the 19th and the 20th century where juggling and other exotic art forms have started to gain favor with audiences across the Americas. So this is the time where there was traveling circuses or traveling shows and juggling was a big part of this. Now, this is sad because we go back to basically mirroring what happened in ancient China where the jugglers were not thought as skilled people or as like higher society. Often the performers who were part of these traveling shows did not get paid well, if at all. And a lot of the time people part of these shows were being basically used for their skills or for their sometimes appearance um, in offer for food and shelter. Do any of you guys know how to juggle? No. Me neither. <laughs> You're making me wonder if juggling is maybe just really easy. <laughs> and that's why there was just so many of them and they could all be treated like <laughs> shit. But no, it's true. <laughs> juggling sounds like like a real skill. Yeah. I was like, great. So I've got a nice history of juggling. Um, but I wanted to know like what other weird things have people juggled in the past? Ooh, yeah. I stumbled across an absolute 
gold mine of information. <laughs> no. <laughs> so there is a group on Google Groups with over 40,000 people. It's called Recreational Juggling. And one of their posts was, what odd things have you juggled? Oh, God. Uh, so I have pulled some of my favorite answers for you. One person on the group tells of this story they know of this guy who juggles sink plungers. <laughs> Not as dangerous as a knife, but a sink plunger. But my favorite bit was that like, there was a little bit of analysis into why. And so they wrote that they have a very good spin. They're not hard on the hand, so you're not going to get splisters or damages. They have good weight distribution. And the other major advantage, according to this gentleman, is that they look definitely foolish. Oh. 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 That is so pure. That is such a nice little... Isn't it cute? Another person I found I think would get on really well with us. They mentioned that they have tried all sorts of things like juggling computer disks, bricks, dangerous, uh, driftwood. These things aren't too crazily shaped and they're not super unusual items. So they're like apologizing to the group being like, oh, it's not too crazy. But they do mention that a friend of theirs was trying to juggle beanbags and then in brackets, the kind you sit in. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. Another sport that would rip my arms out of their sockets. The part that I say that I reckon they'd get along well with us, they put in the bottom of their post that they also juggle physics classes, but that's something entirely different. Oh, <laughs> you're sweetie. To wrap up on this amazing recreational juggling group i've got a secondhand story from one of the members that said that they had a friend who saw a bloke break into covet garden in london sitting on a giraffe whilst juggling an egg a bowling ball and a tomahawk what (laughs) wait what like yeah Just picture that. So some guy in the middle of London, Covert Gardens, London, very old square, sitting on a giraffe. I heard you correctly. You said a giraffe? A giraffe. Yes, apparently. Sitting on a giraffe, juggling an egg, a bowling ball, and a tomahawk, which is basically like an axe. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Hang on. Before the tomahawk is involved, I'm fucking floored. At what it must take to flip back and forth between an egg and a bowling ball. Mm. Just really, like, the amount of force, the way that you can and can't grab it, like, that by itself, I'm floored. And then just to throw and a on a giraffe. Sh- on a giraffe. <laughs> and then to throw a sharp edge into the mix. I That is just, like, I can't imagine how many parts of the brain are lit up trying to keep track of all of that. <laughs> yeah fuck just riding a giraffe what the fuck like how do you do that (laughs) i i couldn't discern whether he had stole it from the zoo in london or if it was his giraffe i'm not sure i can't vouch to the truthfulness of it but this guy seemed very kind and legit wait so he and the giraffe broke in apparently yeah do you think he put both the bowling ball and the egg in his backpack or do you think he had to carry the egg in one hand while he did this? I reckon maybe an egg in a pocket, bowling ball in the backpack. But if you're trying to break in maybe somewhere... Maybe he had it in his mouth. Oh. <laughs> the, old, the old dog trick. Yeah, like the dogs, like the dogs. 
until <laughs> he carries it in his lips. <laughs> You're trying to break in somewhere with a giraffe. That's got to take all your attention. So how are you making sure you don't break an egg in the process? This should be on a tapestry. That yeah. Oh, depiction. my God. Yeah. They would have fainted, Sarah. They would have fucking fainted. I thought I would just round it all off with other bizarre Guinness World Records. So I'd become, I come across some juggling world records, like, you know, multiple knives for multiple minutes. Nothing too crazy. Um, but I was fascinated just like the weird things people do as hobbies and try to get very skilled mm. at them because it's, it's quite niche. I wanted to tell you a couple of just the random Guinness World Records that I stumbled across that have absolutely nothing to do with knife juggling, but I think they're hilarious. The record for the most apples held in your own mouth cut in half by a chainsaw in one minute. <laughs> so this feels like juggling you've got apples chainsaw and you have to like cut the apple spit it out put another one in cut the apple oh you're cutting them from your mouth from your mouth with a chainsaw oh my god i thought you were saying like you just separately cut the like, apples <laughs> with the chainsaw and then try to fit as many in your mouth <laughs> no so how many the record is eight Okay. Which seems like a low bar. It seems like something we could aim for. Did he stop because he cut his nose off? Um, I did not see that, but I hope not. Another strange collection thing that I'd come across was the Guinness World Record for the largest collection of rubber duckies, <laughs> which you could juggle with if you really wanted to. The record for the most rubber duckies owned by one person is 5,631. Do you think they put them all in a shed? Is there a trophy room? I'm pretty sure this person has like a little museum in their house. (laughs) I thought I'd finish it off with just, it's stupid, but it is the most toilet seats broken by someone's head in one minute, which again could be juggling because you're like hitting a toilet seat over your head and throwing it away it's a stretch but i'll allow it because i want to have this record (laughs) thank you well you can have this record if you can beat 46 broken toilet seats in a minute if i can train myself to break a toilet seat a minute with my head we could do it guys i reckon we could get there a toilet seat a second go ask alice gimmick toilet seats challenge I'm going to break 60 with my head. <laughs> you can do that. I'll train juggling and we'll go from there. I would, I would literally rather do that than juggling. Really? <laughs> yeah. Juggling is way too much thinking. Lindsay's like, come at me. My brain can't be hurt. I'm, I'm, there's got to be a technique and that's going to be my secret. So yeah, maybe people who are inexperienced would hurt their brain. I would not. <laughs> okay. The trick is to be like a woodpecker and wrap my tongue around my brain. (laughs) (laughs) That's for free. That's for free. You don't even have to sub our Patreon for that. (laughs) Speaking of, if you would like to join our Patreon and pick what page we start on or what question of the week, you can go to Go Ask Alice podcast on patreon and come and join in the fun you also get behind the scenes stuff and little amazing stickers that we have made and Lindsay has hand drawn some of them they're pretty amazing they're pretty amazing 
man, this was very educational today. I feel like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we really learned things. Today. <laughs> <laughs> we did. And I'm so proud of all of us for going off Wikipedia to dive in the depths of random topic. Truly. Yeah. We can contribute to the world of knowledge. As always, thank you for hanging out with us. Thank you for spending time with us. We hope that we could keep you company on your commute or fill your house with sounds and laughter or really just, you know, keep you busy on the airplane until you reach your destination. Whenever you listen, wherever you <laughs> anything. listen, anything. <laughs> Probably a little better than a screaming baby, but I'm not really going to i'm <laughs> not gonna comment on that <laughs> i'm gonna try uh, you already know by now you can hang out with us at go ask alice pod on twitter go ask alice podcast on instagram if you feel like clicking five stars on spotify you could do that we're not gonna stop you you can come hang out on discord on patreon we really make it pretty easy to be our friend i make a lot of art about drew yeah so if you're passionate about that, if you want to start your own Drew Gallery in your house, you're free to print them out. As always, we love Geist. Hey, we love Geist. We love Geist. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Emotional balls. Emotional balls. <laughs> Mine are tiny. <laughs> uh, I've got about a dozen emotional balls.